in the book of Acts chapter number 17 this evening. We'll look at Acts chapter 17. The Lord will help us. We're going to preach from this portion of scripture tonight for just a little bit. And uh, things the Lord kind of stirring in my heart. Hope maybe he'll stir in your heart as well tonight. If you found your place, we'll stand and we'll reverence the word of God as we read it together. Acts 17, we'll begin reading in verse number 16. The Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and, with, uh, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. Some said, What will this babbler say? Others, uh, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Arapagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for... Thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone or graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We'll hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him, and believed among the, uh, among the which was Dionysus, uh, the Arabagite, uh, the, uh, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, we bow in your presence tonight, and we thank you for the privilege to be here. Lord, thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit of God that has been made real in our hearts already through the singing of the hymns and the special music. Thank you, Lord, for the sweet presence of the Holy Ghost that bears witness with our hearts that we are the children of God. And thank you for the reminder tonight that Jesus loved me, and he went to Calvary for me. 
And Lord, I pray if there'd be one amongst us tonight lost, that Lord, tonight would be the night that the Holy Ghost would do a work in their heart of convicting them of their sin, convincing them of their need, and bringing them to the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you'd help us as your people tonight. Lord, that we'd hear the Word of God and be stirred in our hearts as Paul was stirred in his. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. And I want to preach out of this passage tonight on stirred up to evangelize. Stirred up to evangelize. And uh, we find here that Paul had experienced some pretty difficult days uh, leading up to his arrival in Athens. In fact, if you go back in Acts and you read from beginning back in chapter 16, you'll find he had experienced some really hard days in the city of Philippi. Uh, as he was there and uh, was thrown in jail for preaching Christ. And as they were in jail, instead of getting the pooch lip, they began to sing praises unto God. And One man said they sang the jailhouse rock and God got to tapping his foot along with it and he just rocked those jail cells right open. Uh, we find God intervening in his life miraculously. And uh, Paul's desire to get the gospel to all men and as a result, that jailer was saved there in Philippi. And, and from thence, God began to work in other hearts and lives as well. And from there, they went on to Thessalonica, where uh, uh, there they were uh, forced to leave town for preaching the gospel, both in Thessalonica and Berea. The same folk followed them, kept pushing them out of the city. Oh, but God in His pleasure uh, must needs have Paul go through Thessalonica for there was one by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, who was uh, made to uh, make prayer by the riverside. And it was there that the God of heaven opened her heart to salvation. And uh, we find that Paul uh, is going through some difficulties. He's being imprisoned. He is being run out of the city. He at one time was stoned to death and drug out of the city. They thought he was dead and all of a sudden, here he comes back to life, preaching the gospel once again. I'd say what Paul experienced leading up to Athens here in the text that we're looking at tonight is enough to make anybody throw in the towel. It's enough to discourage any man or woman trying to serve God. And many of us would have had to battle the feelings of bitterness and the internal struggle to just quit and throw in the towel. And say, well, if they don't want God and they don't want the gospel, I'm just going to go back to the house. But Paul didn't do that. And instead of being discouraged, he was moved to action. Always ready to preach the gospel once again. Always ready to confront the sins of paganism and idolatry wherever it was found and cross it at its point of rebellion and preach Christ and Him crucified. We find here that's exactly what happens when he gets to Athens. He's waiting on his missionary team, if you will. He always traveled with companions. And Dr. Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, no doubt traveled with Paul during his missionary journeys. And there were others as well. Early on it was Barnabas and then later Silas. And there was a time when it was Mark. And, and then later there were others that came along. We find here as Paul is waiting on those folk and he's there in Athens. And I don't know about you, but when you've been preaching, you've been traveling, you've been going, you've been ministering, 
You've been raising your family. You've been doing devotion. You've been trying to be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good parent, be a good child. You're trying to serve God, honor God, be devoted to God in everything that you do. Sometimes uh, you just get weary and well-doing. And there's a warning to us in the book of Galatians to be not weary in well-doing, but there's times you get weary. And I know in ministry there's times when you just like to take off the load, the yoke of ministry, and, and just relax for a few days. You know, nobody could have gotten mad at Paul for saying, you know what, I'm going to take about three or four days and just relax. Maybe he was doing that. But in the midst of it, he got to looking around at all the sin he got to looking around at all the idolatry. And my, his spirit began to stir within him. And uh, there was something in him that moved him. I believe the words may be echoed in his heart that he wrote to the Corinthian believers. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. And he was stirred in his heart. He began to preach to that crowd, Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us his spirit was stirred in him. The idea of that phrase means to be moved to action. It means to be urged along, encouraged. It means to be provoked. I was thinking about our little boy Samuel. He's just almost eight months old. He's not real big yet, but he's starting to look. He's alert. He's starting to bounce, and his bouncer is getting some strength. And I thought, well, it's really about time to start trying to encourage him to do some crawling and to reach and things of that nature, provoking him, kind of prodding him along. That's what we do with our children. As they get older, we, we encourage them, we teach them, we bring them along. Well, the Holy Ghost does the same thing in the heart and lives of His people. As we grow in this Christian walk and we go from one stage to another, from grace to grace, from faith to faith, God prods us, He encourages us, He urges us along. That's what He's doing here in Paul's life. He's urging Paul. He's stirring in Paul's heart. He's saying, look around, Paul, there's still work to be done. And may I say that to us tonight. Oh, that God would stir in our hearts to lift up our eyes under the fields that are wide already in the harvest and not be satisfied with the status quo but realize that there are sinners who need the gospel all around us tonight and there's more we can do to get that message to them. Oh, Paul was stirred. We find here God is provoking him to preach the gospel. I want to say tonight it's the Lord's churches that's been given the great commission and it's the Lord's churches that need to be stirred up to evangelize and to reach our communities and our country, and even the tribes here in Oklahoma that, we're, that we are in, the Choctaw Nation and other nations, there's a need tonight for the gospel to be preached. Oh, that God would stir in our hearts and give us that vision and that burden that Paul had here. Well, what'd Paul do with that burden? What'd Paul do with that vision? When he was stirred in his heart, preacher, what did he do? Well, he encountered idolatry. And as a result, he stood against it. And we find that he was brought face to face with the sin of idolatry. We find it in verse number 16 that as he was in that city of Athens uh, and uh, he waited there, that his spirit was stirred when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Idolatry. I thought about the idolatry of their day is the same of this day. We call it polytheism. The word poly, that means many. Theism is gods, and so polytheism is the worship of many gods. 
And uh, I want to say tonight, you don't have to go to a third world country or to another nation somewhere far away to find that. There may have been a day in America when you had to go to Africa or you had to go to India or you had to go somewhere else to find that. There was a day when you'd go to India and you'd find the, the Hindu that believes in over 300 million gods and goddesses. I wouldn't be able to keep up with all the gods if I had to worship that many of them. And there was a day when you had to go and look to the Buddhist and, and all of the writings and all of the things that they're told they have to follow. But beloved, it's right here in our country. And not just in Buddhism and Hinduism, but in man's love of self. There's idolaters on every hand and idolatry in every town. It may not be the worship of some unknown named God that we've never heard of with a funny image, but it may be the worship of self. It may be the worship of job. It may be the worship of hobby. It may be the worship of sports. I'll tell you right now, if nothing else, God's used COVID-19 to take the love of sports in America out of the hearts of a lot of people. You want to talk about the number one idol in America and that's sports, friend. Whether it's NFL, NBA, MLB, college football, basketball, baseball, I know I'll step on some toes here, including mine. But beloved, we've made an idol out of these things. And people would rather go watch their ball than serve God and honor God. And it ought not be so. We ought to be stirred in our hearts over the condition of our land and the idolatry that we see on every hand. And Paul was. Beloved, we see it in this day and age just the same. There's many different gods in many different homes. Whether it's the God of entertainment or the God of money and commerce, there's a lot of gods out there. And Paul was stirred when he seen this sin of idolatry. But it wasn't just that they were worshiping all these other gods, but there was also synchronism taking place. And synchronism means a combination of different forms of beliefs or practices. We see this a lot of times in the New Age religion. It's this emerging church movement. And it's a movement that denounces all denominational affiliation and says, you know what, there's many ways to get to God and many ways to get to heaven. And what works for you is great. What works for me is fine. And what works for them is all right too. And it's a movement that says you can be a Hindu and believe in the Hindu system of belief and one day you're going to make it to heaven. You can be a Baptist and believe the Baptist faith and one day you'll make it to heaven. You can just be unaffiliated with church altogether and live for yourself and just be a good person. We're all headed to the same destination at the end of the way. But beloved, that's not so. Not so. And uh, we find even here they were mixing different faiths to the point that they had an idol to every god they could think of. And in case they left one out, there was an idol to the unknown god as well. They didn't mind worshiping an unknown god that didn't require anything of them that they could do with what they wanted. And that's the attitude of men and women today is they don't mind worshiping anything that they're in control of. But whenever they are come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Christ that demands they bow their knee to King Jesus, repent of their sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus, just as the Jews said, they say, we'll have not this man to rule over us. And that's what was happening in Athens. They were worshiping any and all gods they could think of except for the true and living God. Beloved, we see this taking place even right here in southeast Oklahoma. 
And I know some of you may be disconnected from it, but within the Choctaw Nation, we're seeing a move towards synchronism, taking the old uh, uh, native belief and trying to mix and mingle that with Christianity. Uh, there's places that I've heard of. I know Brother Raymond has experienced firsthand where they go and they'll have chanting in their services. They'll have people come in in traditional dress and they'll be dancing down the aisle to the tune of Amazing Grace. I mean, just a crazy thing. Things you'd never even imagine. But it's called synchronism. It's a sin. It's a sin of idolatry. It's a sin of worshiping self. Worshiping a God of your own imagination. And I'll tell you this, a God of anyone's own imagination will be a God of themselves. They worship themselves. That's what Paul's facing here. Not only the sin of idolatry, but the sin of traditionalism. Verse 17 tells us that he first went to the synagogues. That was his uh, way of ministry. Anytime Paul went into a new city, he'd first go to the synagogue. He'd preach the gospel to the Jews. And when they rejected him, and oftentimes they did, then he'd take the gospel to the Gentiles. We find here he is in the synagogue, disputing with them and preaching the gospel to them. We find here that as Paul is there, he is dealing with the traditions of the Jews, those things that they held to, that depended on, practiced in ceremony, and relied upon heavily. Paul disputed with them, the Bible says. The idea is that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The Bible tells us in chapter 17 here of our text, in verse number 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging unto them that Christ uh, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. That's what he's dealing with. He was dealing with traditionalism and preaching to them the very Christ that they had rejected and hung on a Roman cross and had crucified as he preached to them. Here he opens to them. He disputes with them and then he opens to them. The idea of that word open means to reason and it means to open thoroughly. It means to expound. Paul did not just give a brief few statements or a few uh, evangelistic uh, cliches, but he got up and he began to preach to them the Word of God. And he went line upon line and precept upon precept. And he went verse by verse and he expounded and opened up to them that this Christ who had come was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And if they would believe upon the Messiah, though they had Him crucified, their sins could be washed away. He opened unto them and alleging that means to place alongside and compare. Here Paul was using the method of expository preaching, preaching the Scriptures line upon line to convince the Jews of their error and to convince sinners of their need of Christ. You know what we need today? We don't need just more singing. We don't need all, all these rock concerts and fog machines and light shows and puppet shows and all this mess that we see in modern Christianity. What we need tonight is more preaching. We need people that will open up the Word of God, rare-back, leather-lunged preachers that will just preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul did. He preached Christ. He preached Christ unto them, disputing with them in the market daily. And then, 
certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. He not only preached against the sin of idolatry and the sin of traditionalism, he preached against the sin of philosophy, worldly philosophy. He not only encountered the idolatry and hit it head on, wasn't afraid to deal with sin, but he took to the traditions of men and he wasn't afraid to turn them upside down and, and call out their hypocrisies and their traditions that they had placed above Christ. But he also dealt with the philosophies of the day. We find here that some of the greatest and most influential philosophers of all time have been men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. These type men, they are known in history for having taught in Athens in their schools of higher learning, debating philosophy. And uh, we find that the philosophies that were founded by the Epicureans and the, and, uh, the Stoics were the dominant teachings of that day. When Paul is there, he's being encountered by the dominant teachings. We have men in, that, that go out and, and do that even in the day that we live in. A lot of different men with ministries that go into the universities and they debate and they give the gospel to those that would be self-acclaimed atheists and deniers of God. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's meeting these philosophers toe-to-toe, head-to-head. But he's not just wrangling with them, trying to give them a real good educated spiel to convince them of his position, but he's giving them the gospel. Beloved, you realize that in your own energy and effort, you can't change anybody's mind. But I'm glad that the power of the gospel, God's word is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. He's dealing with these philosophies. First of all, it tells us of the Epicureans. They taught the chief goals in life was pleasure and joy. So whatever brings you pleasure or joy in this life, you should do it. And abstain from anything that will bring you any discomfort or pain. That was the basic philosophy of the Epicureans. They did not deny the existence of gods, but they just believed that the gods did not intervene in human affairs in life. And you weren't accountable to those gods, and you might as well just enjoy your life. Well, let me say this, there's a lot of Epicureans living today. They may not go by that name, but it's seen in the society that we live in here in America. Folk that love pleasure, love the, 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 the lust of their flesh over the moral standards of society and the biblical teaching of God's Word. I think about those that would push, and we're seeing it right now, beloved. It, it makes me sick at my stomach how California lessened the sentence against pedophiles weakened that and you want to know you kind of people say well i wonder why california's on fire well, i don't know they said they didn't want god and here they are lowering the sentence for pedophiles there's no wonder that place is burning up going to hell in a handbasket but that that's kind of the idea of that epicurean philosophy well it makes me happy to have sex with children so as long as it makes me happy it ought to be all right we ought to legalize this i mean if they're consenting Beloved, that's wicked. That's wicked. We ought to stand against that. We ought to be vocal about it. Too many people have been quiet too long. And Well, I don't want to offend nobody, preacher. I don't want to make nobody mad. Well, that's the stance we took when they started pushing abortion. And look at where we are. 
And that's the stance we took when homosexuality started becoming prevalent. And look at where we are. And if we don't take a stand somewhere and preach against these sins, who will? Paul encountered it head on. And he preached against this philosophy of pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Epicureans. And then there were the Stoics. A man by the name of Zeno was the founder of the Stoics and taught that self-mastery was life's chiefest goal. That if you could bring yourself into subjection, no matter what it took, really it was a form of, you might call legalism, but if you could master yourself, there was, that, that, that was the, the, the philosophy that you should live by. By legalism, I don't mean, mean related to religion, but in a sense had very stringent rules for their lives. Wouldn't allow themselves the pleasure of dessert. Well, we got those today. It's called the keto diet. No, I'm just teasing. I'll get in trouble. Preach. That's right. These women put us on this kind of diet. They're awful. No sugar, no good stuff. But that's what the Stoics taught. Self-mastery. They were indifferent to pleasure or even pain. Reaching the place where one felt nothing for anything. They were pantheists, believing that God was not personal. You couldn't know Him. But that all forces and manifestations in the universe were God. That this pulpit was God, and air is God, and the water outside is God, and that you're God. That's what they taught. As a result, they worshipped all God. They worshipped the bird and the moon and the sky and the stars and everything they could. All the while denying themselves anything in life to try to make themselves very holier than thou. Spiritual. This is what Paul encountered when he got to Athens. Idolatry, traditionalism, philosophies, pleasure seekers, self-masters. All of these things that were practiced in Athens are things that we find practiced in the good old United States of America. And sadly, we find them practiced in the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. And practiced in Smithville, right here in our little community. Whether you see it or not, it's happening. Well, what was the result? What happened to Paul when he saw all this? His heart was stirred. His heart was stirred. Does your heart get stirred when you hear the news that the sentence against pedophilia is being weakened? Is your heart stirred when you hear the statistics and the numbers of the babies that are murdered in the womb every year? Know that God would stir in our hearts. Does it stir your heart when you see some life being swallowed up in any number of sins that are out there, whether it's drugs or alcohol or immorality, and you see them going down that path to hell, and they think that they're really living a good life, and you and I who have been saved and bought by the precious blood of Jesus know the bondage that they're in, and they don't even realize it. Does it stir your heart? Or do we become at times so cold and callous and busy doing our thing that we don't even recognize? The sin that's going on around us. Well, Paul was stirred in his heart. And as a result, he preached. He evangelized. He gave the gospel. He told the good news. 
He presented them with the whole gospel, not part of it. He didn't slap a Jesus loves you sticker on the unknown God and go on about his way. But he told them about the unknown God. He told them he was the creator of heaven and earth and that they were who they were by God's design and that God kept them and upheld them and provided for them even though they didn't know him. He introduced to them a sovereign, holy, righteous God in control, doing as He pleases. He told them that they were sinners on their road to hell, that they were depraved, lost wretches that couldn't find God. They might feel after Him, but they couldn't find Him except God. The God of mercy and grace reached down and touched their hearts. Oh, I'm telling you, He preached the gospel to them. And then He went to Christ, who was Get put on a cross, died, was put in a barred tomb, buried, and rose again on the third day. Preached to them what Christ accomplished for His people. He told them if they'd believe upon Him, they too could be saved. He started at creation and went all the way to the tomb and the triumphal resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Oh, His evangelism, it was full, it was complete. It wasn't lopsided. It wasn't an emphasis too much on one thing or the other. But it was a balanced gospel presentation. I wonder how many people in our world, in our country, yay, in Smithville, Oklahoma, has ever heard a balanced presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is holy. So holy that He demands perfect righteousness. And that man is so sinful in himself, he'll never be able to live up to that high holy standard of righteousness. And that man, if left to himself, is helpless and hopeless to change his condition. And that there's only one man that ever lived, the man Christ Jesus, who was ever perfect enough to pay the penalty for our sin. And that the good news is he did. He went to Calvary. He died for men that they might believe upon him. And he purchased them by his own blood. And if they'll call upon him, they too will be saved. Thank God for the gospel tonight. Thank God for the good news that though you might have been born a sinner... And you might not be holy enough to stand before God. That God has made a way of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you see yourself a sinner tonight, if you see yourself as lost tonight, call upon His name, turn from your sin, and cry out to God to have mercy. The Bible says that if you'll believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Paul addresses here as he gives them the gospel, their superstitions in verse 22 and 23. As he stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Too superstitious. He addresses their superstitions. These Athenians were trying to cover all the bases by adding to their gods another altar, and that was an altar to the unknown God. These Athenians as well as our world today, they were ignorant of the true living God. And so Paul just figured he'd oblige them and tell tell them about who he was. They never thought in a million years when they erected that statue to the unknown God that there'd ever be a man by the name of Paul pass through and tell them about who he was. And though certainly that idol was not the unknown God that he preached, he preached to them the God that they knew not anything of, the true and living God. Scripture does not argue God's existence, but it states His existence as a matter of fact. 
Paul didn't begin to debate with them and say, well, from our position, we see by science and by time and by this and that and this equation that God created the heavens and the earth and it only makes sense that God could have done it. I don't have a problem with creationism. We ought to study that, teach it to our children. That's not what he preached. He preached God is. That's how the Bible starts in Genesis 1. It starts from the presupposition that there is a God. God doesn't even try to argue and convince the naysayers that He is because He knows He is. And He says, in the beginning, I created. God created. And that's what Paul does. He doesn't try to argue this and present evidence that this is, but he just preaches it as a matter of fact. Externally, creation tells us that there's a God. Chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that. Internally, the conscience tells us there's a God. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 tells us that. But the gospel tells us that that God is Jesus Christ in the flesh and he died for sinners. Beloved, there's not enough light in all of creation to save a single sinner. There's not enough morality in the conscience of man to ever make him fit for heaven. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that's able to take those rotten, sinful men as bad as they are or as good as they think they are and transform them by the power of that gospel. Hallelujah for the gospel tonight. That's what Paul preached to them. He preached to these superstitious folk. The law of cause and effect. How that that tells us that there is a God. The God Paul taught about could be known from the scriptures. And he's the only hope for a lost sinner on his way to hell. Tonight, if you're lost and on your way to hell, if you're dying tonight without God, without Christ, your only hope tonight is Jesus. It's Jesus. It ain't religion. You'll never be religious enough. It ain't finding some philosophy in the world that can get you from this place to the next. You'll never find it, and you'll find a lot of things that'll trip you up on the way. Your only hope tonight, if you're lost and on your way to hell, is Jesus. And that's what Paul preached to them. He addressed their superstitions and then he introduced them to the true God. God is creator. God is Lord over all. God is omnipresent in all things, everywhere, at all times. He preached God so real, so vivid, so relative to them that they couldn't get away from Him, that they can't hide from Him, that He's in control. And just when you think you've got the upper hand with God, He's already a million steps ahead of you, infinitely so. He introduced him to the true God. That he was omnipotent, omniscient. And that he was alive. <laughs> that that very God-man, Jesus Christ, they crucified, they didn't keep him in the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. And he came forth victorious. And he lives today to give life to those that believe. Praise God. The gospel. Don't you love the gospel tonight? Oh, God, help us to get stirred and to realize there's only one answer to the problems that men face, and it's the gospel. But as a part of that message, he preached repentance. And he tells us that there was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man. And the time of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. He preached repentance. I want to say if God ever does a work in a man or a woman's heart or a child's heart, there's going to be repentance. If you've never repented of your sin, that's a good sign you've never been born again. 
you get saved, God will work repentance in your heart. And you'll not just repent one time. You'll not just repent at an altar, but you'll be repenting every day for the rest of your life. Turning from sin. Every time you're faced with it, you'll turn from it. And you'll follow after God. He preached to them repentance. He preached to them the man, Christ Jesus, as the Son of God and the judge of all the earth, the coming judge. He preached to them turn or burn. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. He preached to them the blood of Jesus is the only hope that they have. And then he preached the resurrection. Christ was crucified on the cross to pay for sin, died, was buried, and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. Oh, that's the gospel, friend. That's what the world needs to hear. That's what Washington needs to hear. May God give us people stirred in their heart preach the gospel so we see his encounter we see his evangelism but then lastly we see the effect of preaching the gospel <laughs> I won't say this I'm glad it ain't up to me to get anybody saved tonight say preacher what do you mean no I'm, I'm, I am I'm glad it ain't up to me now I better preach the gospel or I'm going to give an account to God for being disobedient but it ain't up to me to save not one single soul Paul put it this way. He said, some water, some plant God gives the increase. And I'm glad. I can rest in that. Oh, I can pillow my head at night knowing if I've been obedient to preach what God's told me to preach and live the way God's told me to live and witness to who God's told me to witness to, that the results are in His hands. I believe Paul probably felt the same way. And we find the results or the effect of preaching the gospel here in Athens said some, <laughs> some of them rioted. I mean, <laughs> verse 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They got plumb angry. They got rebellious. They, they, got, they got so beside themselves over the This man died and came back to life. <laughs> All the tales we've heard in Mars Hill, and he's going to tell us that they mocked him. They railed upon him. The lesson we learn from this phrase is we can expect those who are going to mock the gospel when we preach it. Might as well mark it down. If you preach the gospel and you try to be a witness to your friends and your family, they are going to mock you. They're going to, they're, I'll, I'll take it a step further, they're going to hate you for telling them their need of Christ. People don't want to be confronted with their sin, but don't let it surprise you when it happens. It's going to happen. Jesus told us that they hated him and they would hate us also. The word mock means to scoff or deride in words, to turn up their nose, to treat with contempt or to, to sneer at another. Well, they looked down their eyes at Paul, probably one of the most educated men that's ever lived. That's, that's coming from history and, and even worldly historians. A very intelligent man but because he was one of those Bible thumpers, oh, one of them. There were some that rebelled. But then there were some that had respect. There's some people, they'll respect you for being a preacher, or for witnessing to them. I remember times we'd go street preaching in Atlanta when we were in Bible college, and some of those uh, black folk down there, they were some of the most respectful people I've ever met in my life. It's crazy what we see going on now, and 
race relations. It's sad, really. We never had a problem. White and black, they showed us respect. We showed them respect. Fact, in fact, most of the folk that were the hardest people to preach and witness to when we'd go to downtown Atlanta preaching was white people, usually college kids, a bunch of high class, had money, and no respect. But we'd be preaching, and some of them black folk, they'd, they'd be going down there with their 40-inch rims. I don't know how big they were. These big. I don't know how they turn. They had to turn about you know, three times just to get turned around. They'd have their, you know, boom box of boom, 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 boom. Probably not quite that tempo. You know what they'd do? They'd stop, they'd turn their music down, they'd put their window down, and they'd listen to what we had to say. And there were many of those guys. They'd come up to us. They'd pull their, they didn't care. They'd be in a four-lane road right there in the middle of Atlanta. They'd pull over and put it in park and get out. And there's a few times they got out, and as they headed towards us, we wasn't sure what was fixing to happen. We got a little nervous. They'd come over and put their hand out and say, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I respect you for saying it. Now, that kind of breaks your heart because it's people like that you'd really like to see the Lord save them. Right? And he may later. You never know. But that's what happened with Paul. Some folk rebelled against what he said, mocked him, went away laughing and jeering. Some folk said, I, I respect you. I respect you, and I'd like to hear it again. I'd like to consider what you've had to say. There's going to be folk like that. Say, I'll hear you again on this matter. And the lesson that we learn from this is our evangelistic outreach, we can expect some to listen but not respond. That's going to happen. For everyone that does respond, there's probably a hundred that slam the door in your face or even shake your hand and say, well, thank you for that. I'll come visit you. And you never see them again. Hallelujah, thanks be unto God. Though some rebelled and some had respect, some repented. Some got saved. Some heard. And while the others were mocking and the others were inquiring, God was doing a work inside the heart. Oh, they didn't have to come and say, let me hear it again, Paul. And they sure didn't have a rebellious bone in their body. God had already conquered their will. And they'd been brought down to a place of humility before the God of glory. And they were calling on the name of God to have mercy. God had mercy. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. <laughs> the word cleave there, it means to be glued to something. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one. Brother Scott made a table the other day for Miss Thelma, and if y'all have ever seen some of his work, he does excellent carpentry work, beautiful. He took some two-by-eights or sixes, whatever they were, and he joined them together. He used glue and and other things, and I don't know how you do all that, so before I show my ignorance, I'll just stop there. But when you looked at that and you felt of it, it looked like it was all one piece. It had been cleaved together. <laughs> These guys were so affected by the gospel they heard. You couldn't see where they stopped, and Paul began. They loved the man of God. They loved the preacher. He had preached faith into their heart. And they clave unto him. Paul, God saved me. Paul, let me tell you what he's done for me. They clave unto him. 
joined themselves to Paul. I believe these became ardent believers and followers of Christ. I'd say they were the kind that any time Paul was, time Paul was passing through, they, they were the ones that had him over for dinner. They loved the man because God had put his love in their hearts. And the word here, believe, means to trust, to have faith in, to embrace with hope and expectation. They had believed. They had taken the gospel as it was just the word of God. And by the work of God's grace in their heart, they believed on what they heard. How can any man call upon whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can he preach except he be sent? Thanks be unto God that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And as Paul preached the word of God and the gospel, they heard, not with the hearing of the ear, but with the hearing of the heart. God opened their hearts. God quickened and made them alive. And as they heard the truth, it resonated with them like it would have never had before. They realized what they were and what God had done for them, and they professed faith in Christ and confessed Him as Lord. that ever happened to you? Have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, the Bible tells us these folk did, and of them, one of them was Dionysius. Now, he was a member of the Arapagus Court. Or I'm sorry, she was. Oh, no, he was. And then the woman named Damaris with others came to know this unknown God that Paul had preached to them. And the lesson that we learn is that God, he honors faithfulness, doesn't he? We started out, we started out talking about all that Paul endured before he got to Athens. I'm glad he didn't give up, aren't you? I know God's in control, I know God's sovereign, but I know God's ordained the means as well as the end. I'm glad Paul didn't quit. And I guarantee you that Dionysius was glad Paul didn't quit. And that Sister Damaris, I'll probably be able to pronounce their names right when I get to heaven. I'll ask them what their names are. But I guarantee you they're glad Paul didn't quit. God honors faithfulness tonight. Dear child of God, be faithful. You might feel like you've been under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, going through some real fiery trials, and man, it's just hard to do what God's called me to do, but be faithful. Keep, keep on pressing on for the glory of God. Keep telling your family. Keep telling your children. Keep being a witness on the job site. Keep preaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's able to save sinners tonight. And you never know, it may be that one that you've about given up on that God's just fixing to work in their heart and you'll have the blessing of getting to see it when it happens if you just be faithful. Some are going to respect you for it. Some are just going to reject it. All out reject it. But there's some who are going to receive it. So be faithful. And may God stir our hearts to evangelism. As we look around this world and we see it wholly given to idolatry and wickedness, and let's preach the gospel to them and let's see God do a work in their